Support for Petri Dish is made possible by UT Health San Antonio, committed to transforming the health of the community through a team that tackles problems from every angle, doing everything it takes to bring each patient the best possible outcomes, from teaching tomorrow's healthcare leaders to translating research into new treatments. UT Health San Antonio strives to make lives better. Learn more at everythingittakes.org. Back in the late 70s, the pharmaceutical company Hoffman LaRoche had a problem. It was the company behind the most prescribed drug in America, Valium, and in 1978, it was at the peak of its popularity. More than 2 billion capsules of the benzodiazepine were consumed that year, but people were starting to talk. Every time the pills would start to wear off, I'd go back to the doctor and say, I need something stronger. And he'd keep giving me stronger. The tranquilizer, designed to take the edge off what Roche called psychic tension that seemed to permeate post-Vietnam War-era households, was doing real damage. They call it the housewife's cocktail. The tranquilizers that ease frayed tempers and the hundred little daily frustrations of housework and children. But too often, in the privacy of their homes, women become addicted to the mood drugs. This report that aired on New Jersey Nightly News followed former First Lady Betty Ford's admission that she was addicted to alcohol and prescription drugs, including Valium, for which she sought treatment in 1978, and the 1979 Senate subcommittee hearing on benzodiazepines, led by Senator Ted Kennedy, who called them a nightmare of dependence and addiction. In the 1980s, it became clear that benzodiazepines were not the safe, you know, trivial little drugs that had they'd been they'd been marketed as originally. They did cause dependence. They did cause lots of problems, and they had been basically given out to numb people who's who who were in difficult circumstances and had unhappy lives. That's psychiatrist Joanna Moncrief, our guest on this episode of Petri Dish. She's the lead author of a paper that pulls together years of research on the low serotonin theory of what causes depression. But we'll get to that in a minute. Right now, she's telling us about how the marketing disaster around Valium in the late 70s and early 80s would influence the marketing decisions around a new class of psychiatric drugs a decade later. That created a bad press for the idea of using drugs to deal with emotional problems. And the pharmaceutical industry basically set out to change that mindset and to change our perception of the nature of emotional problems and the role of drugs in managing them. How has that played out? Well, remember this strangely adorable animated little round guy from TV just sort of rolling around under a big gray cloud, softly and sadly sighing? You know when you feel the weight of sadness. You may feel exhausted, hopeless, and anxious. Whatever you do, you feel lonely and don't enjoy the things you once loved. Things just don't feel like they used to. 
These are some symptoms. This is a Zoloft ad. Zoloft is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, a class of drugs that has been the most commonly prescribed antidepressants on the market since they became available in 1988 when Prozac was released. But in the marketing for SSRIs, gone were terms like psychic tension. SSRIs didn't treat symptoms. They treated a disease. These are some symptoms of depression, a serious medical condition affecting over 20 million Americans. While the cause is unknown, depression may be related to an imbalance of natural chemicals between nerve cells in the brain. Prescription Zoloft works to correct this imbalance. The pharmaceutical industry's campaign to persuade us all that depression was a brain disease and that antidepressants were correcting that disease came after the big scandal of benzodiazepine prescribing and dependence that happened in the 1980s. So the idea that took hold back then and is still pervasive today, more than 30 years later, is that if selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors increase the level of a natural chemical, serotonin, available in the brain, it must follow that the disease of depression is caused by serotonin deficiency, sort of like hypothyroidism is caused by thyroid hormone deficiency. So obviously, both diseases could be treated with a pill to balance out the levels of chemicals in your body, right? Right? <laughs> well, almost immediately, researchers began to call into question the low serotonin theory of depression. Here and there, every few years, a new study would poke a new hole into the idea. But still, many people ascribed to it. Many doctors, even, and a whole bunch of patients. So, Dr. Moncrief, who you just heard from on Valium's marketing disaster, decided to put a team together to gather all the research they could find on the low serotonin theory of depression, analyze it, and see where the evidence pointed about the validity of the theory and, by extension, what that might mean for the popular drugs used for decades to treat depression. What did they find? From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Meet Dr. Joanna Moncrief. So I'm a psychiatrist. I work in the National Health Service in London, in England, seeing patients with uh, mostly quite severe mental health problems. And I'm an academic as well, and I do research and teaching. And my long-standing interest has been in psychiatric drugs, medications like antidepressants, and particularly um, ideas about how they work and what they're, they're actually doing. Psychiatric drugs like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, antidepressants that many believe treat depression by tweaking serotonin levels in the brain. So. I wanted to do a proper overview of all the evidence on the serotonin theory of depression. And I wanted to do that because I knew it had been an extremely influential theory. And in fact, that most members of the general public thought it wasn't a theory, but thought it was a demonstrated fact that depression was linked with serotonin. And yet I was also aware that within the academic and research community, people were aware that actually this had not been demonstrated and that, in fact, maybe the evidence was quite weak. 
But no one had really got the evidence together. And that's partly because there is so much evidence. So what we decided to do was to look at all the main areas of research and uh, get all the evidence together across those main areas of research. And because there have been so many hundreds and hundreds of studies, we did what's called an umbrella review. An umbrella review is kind of like a study of studies. And this review analyzed 17 different earlier reviews, meta-analyses, other large single studies, and genetic studies. So we looked for studies of serotonin levels in the blood and other body fluids. And in fact, there aren't not many of these have been done recently, uh, partly because serotonin is broken down quite quickly. But we did find a large study of plasma levels of serotonin. It was a meta-analysis of three studies done with postmenopausal women uh, about various biochemical markers. And one of the findings was that there was no difference between people who had a diagnosis of depression and people who didn't in terms of their serotonin levels. So depressed or not, their serotonin levels were about the same. But the interesting thing from that study was that people who were taking antidepressants did show lower levels of serotonin, regardless of whether or not they were diagnosed with depression. And that was a, a marked and statistically significant difference, suggesting that antidepressants might actually lower uh, levels of serotonin in the long term rather than boost them. So that was um, a surprise to us. I wasn't expecting to find that. Another thing Moncrief and her team were curious about was, had anyone been able to induce depression by intentionally reducing a study participant's serotonin levels? Yeah. So these are studies called tryptophan depletion studies, and they're studies which involve giving people a drink of amino acids which lacks the amino acid tryptophan, which is what serotonin is made out of in the body. And if you give people this drink, um, what happens is you get a very rapid reduction of serotonin in the brain. Anyway, these experiments have set out to test whether giving this drink to um, people without depression can induce symptoms of depression by lowering serotonin. And basically, studies in volunteers do not show that giving a tryptophan depletion drink produces depressed symptoms. So Moncrief's review of years of studies on hundreds of people with and without a diagnosis of depression found little evidence that the serotonin levels of people diagnosed with depression were any different from those who didn't have a diagnosis. And depression could not be induced by depleting a person's brain of serotonin. So we concluded that there was no evidence that serotonin abnormalities are linked with depression. They didn't even find evidence of any kind of association between serotonin levels and depression. An association in itself is not proof of a causal mechanism, but there was not even any reliable or consistent evidence of an association between serotonin and depression. Okay, so what does that mean for your average depressed American? First of all, it means that we have no evidence that people who are depressed have a chemical abnormality in their brain. There 
there is no evidence to support the serotonin theory. And there, although there are many other theories or speculations about brain abnormalities that may be linked with depression, they have not been demonstrated either. So we really cannot say that people who are depressed have any abnormality of their brain. And it's really important that people understand that and that doctors stop telling people that that is the case um, and that other, the pharmaceutical industry and other uh, actors stop telling people that that is the case too. Uh, and, and therefore we must conclude that whatever antidepressants are doing, they are not reversing some underlying brain abnormality that is the mechanism for the production of depression. And this last statement, this is the conclusion that set mental health Twitter on fire when the Moncrief Review called the serotonin theory of depression, a systematic umbrella review of the evidence, was published in the Journal of Molecular Psychiatry in the summer of 2022. She's coming for our SSRIs, people seem to think. And she kind of is coming for SSRIs, even though she prescribes them in her practice and is not advising anyone to stop taking them right this minute based on her team's review. But if an SSRI's effect on serotonin levels isn't what's causing some people who take them to feel better, what is? We know that antidepressants, for example, uh, produce emotional numbing effects they numb both positive, both negative and positive emotions, um, and uh, and and that effect may temporarily override or reduce people's underlying feelings of sadness, uh, and so that may be one way that they have effects in clinical trials. But um, but it's also important to realise that the evidence that antidepressants supposedly work comes from randomized control trials that compare antidepressants and placebo. And the difference that they find in these trials is between antidepressants and placebo is actually very small. And it is debatable as to whether that difference really is clinically meaningful and whether it's anything to do with the pharmacological effects of antidepressants. I reached out to the American Psychiatric Association about this, and the chair of the Council on Research, Dr. Jonathan Albert, sent me a statement. He acknowledged that low serotonin doesn't cause depression, but said it is important to separate the issue of mechanisms like low serotonin from the issue of effectiveness in the case of SSRIs. And he said, rigorous meta-analyses have repeatedly shown that antidepressants work better than placebo for major depressive disorder. Yes, he said, in some cases they have only modest benefit, but in some cases, he said, they're truly life-saving. The debunking of the low serotonin theory, according to Alpert, doesn't, quote, in any way alter the fact that these medications worked and continue to work for millions of individuals whose quality of life and safety are profoundly affected by depression. For any individuals with clinical depression, antidepressants should remain on the short list of safe and effective evidence-based therapies they discuss with those who are treating them. Back to Moncrief. So a, a lot of people have responded to our paper by saying that antidepressants work and 
either saying it doesn't matter how they work or the implication is that it doesn't matter how they work. It doesn't matter if they're not correcting a serotonin deficiency. Um, and I would say two things to that. First of all, whether antidepressants work, I would say is debatable because the evidence from randomized control trials is so weak. But secondly, I would say that how antidepressants work or how they have their effects is crucially important. We are not sure what antidepressants are doing to the brain, but because we've got no evidence that there's an underlying abnormality of the brain, we have to um, we have to conclude that, that antidepressants in themselves are modifying our normal brain chemistry, are changing the normal state of the brain. So you're fixing a brain that isn't broken. If, if you are told that you have something wrong with your brain and there is a pill that's going to put that right, of course it makes sense to take that pill. Of course it does. If you're told there's no evidence there's anything wrong with your brain and we have a pill that will actually change the normal state of your brain, it might numb you a bit. Some of its effects might, might make you less aware of your feelings. Um, but but we don't really know what it's you know what the long-term consequences of taking it are, then that's a very different proposition. And <clears throat> I believe many people would make a different decision about taking antidepressants if they were given that information. And that's really what Moncrief is pushing for here, a different way of thinking and talking about depression. We'll have more on that when Petri Dish continues. Support for the Petri Dish podcast comes from Dr. Lisa Ochoa and the SAVE Clinic, providing comprehensive vascular care with a team of three surgeons at seven locations. Office vascular circulation screenings and amputation prevention services at thesaveclinic.com. Support for Petri Dish is made possible by UT Health San Antonio, committed to transforming the health of the community through a team that tackles problems from every angle, doing everything it takes to bring each patient the best possible outcomes, from teaching tomorrow's healthcare leaders to translating research into new treatments. UT Health San Antonio strives to make lives better. Learn more at everythingittakes.org. You're listening to Petri Dish. So if depression isn't caused by low serotonin in the brain, what is it? While most experts, if not Moncrief, agree that there is something going on in our bodies that is part of the complex combination of factors that lead to depression, they would also agree that part of it for many is not biological. Moncrief says that also came up in her research. This wasn't part of our protocol, but the genetic studies incidentally showed strong evidence that having experienced adverse life effects in the past strongly predicts your chances of getting depression in future life. And that uh, replicates a lot of other research that shows that as well, that people who <coughs> experience adverse life effects are more at risk for depression. It's what's happened to us and what's happening to us now. It's our environment. It's our relationships. It's our lives. We need to understand depression in a different way and in a way that we actually used to understand it before 
the pharmaceutical industry came along and persuaded us that it was a brain disease. And we used to understand depression as an emotional reaction to our circumstances. That is a reaction to circumstances, but also inflected by our personality, our upbringing, uh, everything that's, that's happened in our past and makes us who we are. Um, so that's how I think we need to understand depression. That's how we used to understand depression. That fits with all the data that suggests that people who've had adverse life events and are currently in difficult circumstances are much more at risk of depression than people who haven't. Several months ago when I started working on this show, I read a book about depression by a journalist named Johan Hari. It's called Lost Connections. Lost connections refers to the connections we've lost with meaningful values and work that gives us purpose, the connections we've lost with the natural world, the connections we've lost with each other, our families, our communities, the cooperative groups we've evolved to really require, and our disconnection from a hopeful or secure future. He argues that it's our disconnected lives in this modern, wired world, in addition to our biology, that are causing what's essentially a pandemic of depression. One of the points he makes in a TED Talk about the book is this, quote, If you're depressed or anxious, you're not weak, and you're not crazy, you're a human being with unmet needs. Unmet needs. You know, I I think one of the reasons that antidepressants have become so popular is that people feel when they're prescribed an antidepressant that that someone is taking them seriously. So antidepressants sort of have come to represent that idea that, you know, I have a serious problem and I am entitled to support. And we need to find other ways of acknowledging people's distress and offering people support that do not involve labelling them with a brain disease that we have no evidence that they have and giving them chemicals that in the long term at least will probably do more harm than good. And that's the thing. If you believe your SSRI is treating your brain chemical imbalance, why would you ever stop taking it? A person with hypothyroidism doesn't stop taking their medication when their thyroid disease goes into remission. They just get sick again. So I think a lot of people, consciously or not, plan to be on these medications forever. But these drugs weren't approved for lifetime use, and there are no studies to tell us what impact they might have on our bodies and our brains if used for decades, or even if they keep helping after a certain amount of time. A study published in April 2022 in the journal PLOS One suggests they may not. Researchers found that those surveyed who were taking antidepressants over a two-year period reported feeling no better with respect to either physical or mental quality of life issues than those not taking antidepressants. So now what? I would encourage people to, to um, think carefully about what they think the drugs are really achieving for them, to realize that these drugs are drugs they are drugs that change the normal state of the body and brain. And I would encourage people to think carefully, you know, are those changes really helpful for me or not? 
uh, and don't don't do anything suddenly. Don't do anything. Don't have a knee jerk reaction. Think about this carefully. Talk about it with people. Do some reading, and then if you decide you think that the drugs are actually not being helpful, then go and discuss it with your healthcare professional and plan a gradual and careful reduction of the medication because these drugs can produce withdrawal symptoms, particularly if you've been on them for a long time. So people do need to come off carefully. Ah, withdrawal, otherwise known as discontinuation syndrome, can feel like the flu with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, headaches, and sweating. It can wreck your sleep, causing insomnia and fatigue. It can give you vivid nightmares. It can make you anxious and agitated. You might experience panic attacks. Discontinuation syndrome can cause tremors, vertigo, dizziness, and something that feels like little electric shocks known as brain zaps. Some people stop antidepressants and have few symptoms of withdrawal, if any. But a 2019 study found that more than half of people who try to come off the meds experience some symptoms of withdrawal, and nearly half of them rating their discontinuation symptoms as severe. The risk of sickness associated with discontinuing antidepressants can be reduced by slowly decreasing your dose over time. And by over time, for some people, it takes many months of tiny reductions in dose to get down to nothing. And the conclusion of a review published in the journal European Neuropsychopharmacology last month was that people who are tapering from antidepressants will have better outcomes if they practice self-care behavior, particularly mindfulness and relaxation, and lean on supportive relationships. In fact, self-care and supportive relationships would probably improve the outcomes of treatment for depression, too, both with and without medication. I think we need to demedicalize our understanding of distress. Um, I think we need to go back to our, what I would say is our instinctual common sense understanding of emotions and how to manage them. And part of that instinct, I would say, is that taking drugs to deal with emotional with emotions at least in the long term is probably not a helpful thing to do so i think we need to get back to a non-medicalized understanding of emotional distress and non-medical ways of supporting people through it that's dr joanna moncrief psychiatrist professor researcher and lead author of the serotonin theory of depression a systematic umbrella review of the evidence. While writing this show, I kept a screenshot of a friend's Facebook post about how Zoloft had really revolutionized her life close by. I didn't want to lose sight of the fact that for some people, SSRIs are a miracle. They give them the boost they need to rejoin life. To make those connections that Johan Hari correctly notes many of us are sorely lacking. If you're deeply depressed, even if an SSRI is just numbing your emotions, that's an improvement, right? And even if the benefit is a placebo effect, who cares? <laughs> the hope is that you can take that window of time during which you're not clinically depressed, jump through it, 
and begin to repair the other parts of your life that might be contributing to your depression. But for a lot of people, that's not how it goes. A recent review of research led by a Food and Drug Administration researcher found that only 15% of participants in the clinical trials they reviewed experienced a substantial antidepressant effect beyond a placebo effect. That's not a great number, but if you're in the 15%, it is. I've spent a lot of time over the years wondering if SSRIs might have helped my sister, who died by suicide, or my mom, who died of a disease of despair. If they were alive today, in light of these findings, would I encourage them to try an SSRI? You bet I would. (laughs) I'd try anything. But also, over the years, I've sought all kinds of treatment for my own depression, which was eventually categorized as treatment-resistant. SSRIs just weren't that into me, and I tried several. Eventually, my doctor and I landed on a drug that does work on the serotonin system to treat major depressive disorder, but isn't really classified as an SSRI, and I guess it helped. Regardless, I stayed on it for years while encouraging others to take their medicine. Then, during the pandemic, I, like a lot of people probably, careened back into what I lovingly call the ditch, an oppressive hopelessness that my medicine was supposed to help me avoid. So I was already on the highest dose of this last resort depression med. What was I going to do now? My psychiatrist suggested adding another med, and I realized that, no, I didn't want that. I I didn't want any more meds. The meds I was on had never really helped that much anyway. I had experienced the numbing effect that allowed me to pull myself out of the ditch way back when, and that was definitely a good thing, but I never really got beyond that. This was around the time Moncrief's review came out and I started to work on the show. I read Hari's book and a ton of other stuff, and I began to wonder what might happen if I just stopped. After all these years, could I? I wanted to try. So I started slowly weaning off my medication. I got a new talk therapist because my history and current circumstances weren't exactly conducive to bliss, and I needed to work on that. And I started paying closer attention to other things like my nutrition and my environment. I experienced what I consider mild discontinuation syndrome with flu-like symptoms and insomnia and extreme fatigue. Irritability, too, and I'm generally not at all an irritable person, so I really hated that. These symptoms have all faded, though I still get the occasional brain zap to keep me on my toes. But you know what? (laughs) I'm off the med and out of the ditch. That is a very big deal. Depression is complicated. I do personally believe Like many, if not most, in the field of psychiatry, 
that there is biology involved, even if it's not low serotonin. I'm very excited, for example, about past and ongoing research into the connection between gut bacteria, the microbiome, and depression. But an awful lot of people are on antidepressants right now. The Centers for Disease Control says that between 2015 and 2018, more than 13% of American adults had taken antidepressants in the 30 days before they were surveyed. That's nearly 30 million people. The National Survey of Children's Health in 2018 and 2019 found that nearly 13% of children between the ages of 12 and 17 were taking some kind of medication to improve their concentration, their behavior, or to help manage their emotions. That's an awful lot of developing brains, and that's all before the pandemic. My takeaway from this is that all of us as parents, as patients, as medical professionals, and as a nation, need to be much more intentional about how we treat depression specifically and mental health more broadly. We shouldn't just be going into our primary care doctor's office with legitimate complaints about hopelessness, lethargy, and say fatigue, and walk out with a prescription for an SSRI in our hand without also having talked about what these medicines are, what their limitations might be, for how long we might take them, and what we should do when it's time to stop. You and your doctor should have also investigated other possible causes for your symptoms and considered further tests, discussed finding a talk therapist, and perhaps considered a referral to a psychiatrist. So I guess what I'm saying in the end is it's not as simple as a pill. It never was. If Moncrief's review has taught us anything, I hope it's that. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by TPR News Director Dan Katz, Jacob Rosati, and me. Rosati is also the brilliant person behind the original music and sound design on this show. Petri Dish is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.